0: Welcome to our podcast about the ongoing refugee crisis, where we'll be talking about issues surrounding this topic and what it entitles alongside Mr Colin Yeo. Colin is a barrister at Garden Court Chambers in London, specialising in immigration, asylum and nationality law. In 2020, he published Welcome to Britain, Fixing Our Broken Immigration System, a book charting and examining immigration policy over the last 30 years and setting out some ideas for how to start putting things right. Colin also manages the Free Movement Immigration Law Blog, which he founded in 2007. Mr Yeo, I wanted to say thank you again for agreeing to join us today for this podcast. I will start with a question that will perhaps give an insight to those who are not as familiar with this subject could you give us a brief outline of the process that an asylum seeker or a refugee coming to the UK today would undergo?
1: Yeah, I I could spend ages talking you through the, the asylum process in a lot of detail, but to sort of give you a very quick overview, um, First of all, you've actually got to, to get here. You can't claim asylum from abroad, generally speaking. So you've got to be sort of physically on the territory of the United Kingdom. Um, there are some resettlement schemes, but the, you can't really apply for them as such. Generally, the, the Ukraine situation we might talk about later is a bit different. But generally speaking, you've got to be here, first of all. Um, and And then when you claim asylum, you get put through what we generally call screening, which is where the Home Office takes your personal information, your name, your country of origin. They also take what they like to call bio data, which is just a, a sort of fancy word of saying your photograph and your fingerprints. Um, and they ask you a few basic questions about um, what happened to you and why you're claiming asylum, but not a lot, no, no sort of detail to it. And then um, on the basis of that screening interview, they then um, put you into different sort of streams within the asylum system. And these These streams vary from time to time, but there's a detained fast track that that closed down in 2015, but we're likely to see reopening soon. There's a sort of system for children, the system for um, people from with with clearly unfounded cases in the view of the home office and so on. So there's different streams that you get put through. And then um, whichever stream you're in, you'll have a full asylum interview at some point, which can be several hours where you, you talk through an interpreter if you need one. Home office interviews you. Um, and they they record it on audio. They also write down rather laboriously all the questions and answers and so on. Following that interview, you then get a decision. Um, either the decision is a positive one, which is actually um, uh, people think that a lot of asylum seekers aren't genuine. A- actually, about seventy percent, I think it is seventy two percent of asylum claims in twenty twenty one succeeded at that initial stage. So the Home Office decisions were actually positive ones in in over 70 percent of cases we think um that's according to the, the home office statistics but if you're one of the unfortunate few not to get asylum um then you have a right of appeal and that's where somebody like me comes in i'm a i'm a barrister i represent people at court at the tribunal and um, you get uh, legal aid to get representation from somebody like me um, who helps you with the appeal in front of an immigration judge and if necessary you know you can go right the way up through the appeal process up to the supreme court in a handful of cases so that, that's the whole, that's the thing in a nutshell, should we say.
0: You mentioned something about the appeals towards the end. In general, how successful did they tend to be, the 30% that haven't gone through that initial process?
1: It, it varies over time. So we've seen this with the initial um, success rate as well, with the Home Office decisions. It, it used to be quite low. So I was, I was doing some research on what things were like in the in the 90s, sort of just before I started my own practice. I kind of started work as a lawyer in about two thousand. And um, the success rate was something like 4%, um, according to, to, to the then Home Secretary, Michael, Michael Howard, in about 1994 or so. And it kind of gradually crept up over the years uh, until it's reached this, this high or so far high of, of 70, 72%. And the appeal um, success rate has been similar. It was quite low in the past, around hovering around 20% for a number of years. It then crept up to about 50%. Um, Three or four years ago, I think it is without having the stats right in front of me, but it hovers at about 50% for asylum cases at the moment. So um, we might expect that might go down again now that so many people are getting positive initial decisions, but we haven't actually seen that happen yet.
0: Yes. Well I suppose the immigration system in England has seen some changes recently, and some more drastic than others, including the Nationality and Borders Bill, which you also talk about in your book. Would you be able to tell us what these changes entitled and why they caused such an upheaval?
1: Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question now because um people like me who sort of follow all this very closely, we get very caught up in the detail, and it always feels like there's major change going on. There's always something happening to write about in, in immigration asylum law. But if you actually stand back from things, there's also been an awful lot of continuity since the kind of late 90s, early 2000s, when, when various kind of core asylum policies were, were put in in place by Conservative government and then, and then New Labour government. Um, the, the exception to that may be with with as you say, with the new nationality and borders bill it 's actually an act now it was it, it passed parliament and got got um, the queen's signature last week and um, the big big change that we may see from that um, is potentially what we call offshoring, which is where a refugee comes to the United Kingdom. They may well have a very good asylum case. They may well come from a, a, a country like Iran, where the vast majority of people actually succeed in their cases, or from a country like Ukraine. There's, there's no national carve out for Ukrainians who are claiming asylum. Um, and instead of having their case processed here in the UK and being given refugee status here in the UK, we kind of and I I'm, I, I, I want to apologize for using this kind of language. It's it's really de- it's it's really dehumanising, frankly. But um, this is this is what this is the nature of what the government is talking about doing. Basically, farm them out or export them. Or, you know, as I'm talking about them as if they were goods, because that's the way the British government is is seemingly seeing them. Frankly, I, I can't think of other language to describe what what's really happening. They are being treated as. As chattels almost. And um, they're being exported to some other country for their cases to be processed there. And for them, if they do win their cases, to be to be given asylum there as well. So there's this deal with um, Rwanda um, that the government has relatively recently reached. We haven't seen it um, implemented yet. You know, when, when it was first announced just before Easter, I think they were talking about a timescale of it happening within weeks. And just a couple of days ago, they've said, Oh, no, we didn't mean that. We just meant months. Uh, and you know, th- this sort of thing where you get a big headline announcement, but then no follow through. So I say that may be a really major change because if it happens, if suddenly the British government does start basically outsourcing its asylum responsibilities to other countries, that would be a really major change. But I'm quite sceptical about whether it's really going to happen at all or if it does happen on any kind of you know scale it'd be really horrible for the people who go through it but I, i just i'm really struggling to imagine that more than a handful of people are ever going to be removed there
0: the prospect for some of these individuals of being sent to the other side of the world from where they initially came from must be terrifying. But the fact that they are being sent to Rwanda specifically has caused greater controversy than the actual act itself. What do you think about this and why may have that been the case?
1: Well, the, the Nationality and Borders Act, it's full of um, old ideas. It's kind of There's a lot of I, th- I think the Home Office is trying to put some genies back in the bottle and uh, things like there's some really weird, obscure technical changes to the law around this a split standard of proof where one standard of proof applies to establishing past acts and a different standard of proof applies to establishing future risk and stuff like this stuff that was litigated. 20 years ago, um, but and, and has not caused any problems since then, but has suddenly been dredged up because basically they haven't got a clue what to do. They're sort of utterly without ideas about how to manage um really the, the the small boats crisis and i think it is appropriate to call it a crisis because thousands of people putting themselves into small dinghies to cross the english channel is really bad it's it's really dangerous for the people involved and it, it causes huge anxiety in this country as well it's just it's, it's bad all round. it is a crisis but the home you know the the, the things that we're seeing in this legislation are, are very unlikely to have any real impact on that um, and, it, you know, it's questionable how far there's anything that could be done actually to, to affect this route once it's become established. But certainly, you know, the kind of changing the standard of proof it is not really likely to have a, a serious impact. And, I, in, and removing a handful of people to Rwanda isn't likely to have a serious impact either, because we're talking about fairly substantial numbers of people coming in you know what the the numbers were hovering at about 30 to 35,000 a year it's gone up quite considerably actually we're talking about maybe 50,000 people a year including dependents which is nowhere near the peak of of number of asylum claims that we saw in the early 2000s but that's still quite a substantial number of people And maybe a couple of hundred people or less than that being removed to Rwanda is such a small percentage of that total that the people are capable of working out the risks themselves. And the risk of being sent to Rwanda is pretty limited, frankly, in those circumstances.
0: This is really interesting to hear, actually, because when you look at the media, they make it seem very different. And it is fascinating the outlook you get when you work with this and follow it as closely as you do. Talking about the number of refugees and refugee crises, I just wanted to talk about the refugee crisis of 2016. What was Britain's policy towards the refugee crisis then? And perhaps could you tell us a little bit about Europe's attitude in comparison too?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think um, I'm not so much of an expert about what goes on in the EU. And I, I, I follow what happens here in the UK quite, quite closely though. And, and going back to your previous question, it's like, well, I, when I'm talking about, I'm making predictions about, you know, the number of people removed to land, I know I could be wrong about this. You know, my, my feeling is based on my experience that we're talking about, you know, maybe no people or a small number of people, but I, I could be wrong about that. It could be that there are actually substantial numbers who, who are removed there in the end, and I'm, I'm sort of conscious of that. But um, 2016, um, and that was the, the Syrian refugee crisis, essentially, where you know, you've got this massive civil war in Syria. You've got millions of people fleeing. And uh, only a small percentage of those people tried to make an onward journey into Europe. You know, most remained in the surrounding countries, but a small number did try to move on because they wanted to do something. you know, being stuck in a refugee camp in in Lebanon with nothing to do, no prospects, no work, nothing for your children. is a pretty unappealing prospect for for a lot of people. Some people stayed, but, but, well, most people stayed, but some moved on. And, um, Yeah, it was it was not a it was not a a glorious response, frankly, from the EU or from from the UK. You know, there were strong efforts in multiple countries to just stop people from coming, basically, and to keep them out, make them somebody else's problem. And so you saw fences being constructed in some European countries or border countries. You saw um, you saw a government minister in the UK announcing what i I characterize as the let them drown policy you know we shouldn't be involved in search and rescue because it creates an unintended pull factor you know that's a a quote from the minister in the house of lords who was who was was talking about this they what should let people drown to to put off other people from making the same attempt that that's pretty that's pretty um serious or moral um calculus so um yeah it, it, it wasn't a good response um eventually just the 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 reality of the situation caused some countries like like Germany in particular to sort of stand up and actually um, do something about it so you 've got the kind of famous famous angela merkel angela merkel um, we can cope um, which is apparently a terrible translation from the original german there 's no sort of direct equivalent but you know basically saying we, we you know, that the country could manage they could absorb those Syrians and they and they did very successfully um over a million and Germ- Germany has shot up the kind of you know, if you follow these refugee statistics and trends and so on, there's always tables from UNHCR charts and graphs and so on, showing who are the top refugee hosting countries and so on. And Germany shot right up there straight away. You know, they're into the top three, I think it was um, immediately, um, which is, which is a big deal. You know, there are already millions of refugees being hosted in all sorts of countries around the world. And, and um, Germany did a great job in, 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 in standing up in the way that they did and, and helping those people and, in a successful, long-term way. You know, there's all sorts of really great success stories that have come from that episode.
0: Thank you. I would like to just now talk and move on to our most recent refugee crisis, the Ukrainian one. Would you be able to say if Britain's attitude towards Ukrainian refugees had been different in any way to that of 2016?
1: Yeah, it certainly has been different. And um, certainly in, in the rhetoric at least, and the kind of public attitudes, it's been very, very different, and there's been a lot more welcome. And there's no doubt in my mind that there's a massive race issue there. You know, Ukrainian refugees are perceived as being white, Syrian refugees are, are perceived as not being white. And that that's one of the big reasons why there has been a, a difference in in attitude by the government and also by the public. I don't think it's simply only race there are other issues as well so i think there's an awful lot of sympathy for ukrainians because um because their country has been invaded which is a slightly different situation to a civil war i think it's more it's easier to be more sympathetic where there's a clear aggressor in place although you know if you know anything about assad's regime in syria you know they're not the good guys but it's it's a bit it's a bit more straightforward for people to understand that i think there's also the kind of Cold War elements, you know, obviously the Cold War officially ended quite some time ago. Um, well, not that there ever was an official Cold War as such, but, you know, that, that clearly ended with with the end of the, the Soviet Union. But people have long memories and Russia is kind of perceived as being, you know, an old aggressor. And I think there are kind of geopolitics involved there, which, which cause people to be more sympathetic as well. So I wouldn't say it's just race, but predominantly really I think it probably is race um, that's caused those different attitudes, but but the situation on the ground has been dismal in the uk so the, Euro- the european union has waived all visa requirements for ukrainians all european union countries have done that now which means that they're simply able to cross into the border countries like um, poland and then move onwards they're able to work and um, they've given three years of permission to stay automatically and they can they can just get on with their lives as best as they can in the awful situation that they're in whereas the uk has maintained its requirement to get a, to get a visa to come here and has only issued i think it's something like 20,000 visas so far at the time of the time that we're speaking and obviously that's a number that changes no sorry i'm i'm getting that wrong they've issued more visas but only around twenty thousand people have actually used those visas and entered, because the way that they're being issued, people aren't being told that they've been issued, or they're not issuing them to one member of a family, which means the whole of the rest of the family can't travel. So you know the kids might get visas, but the mother doesn't. I thought, well, the kids aren't coming on their own. So um, and 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 that that's caused you know a, a small number of visas, frankly, has been issued, but an even smaller number of people have actually been able to make use of those visas and arrive in the UK. So although there's all this sympathy and so on, in apparently in government and you know, touting these kind of bespoke schemes and generosity and, and so on, and the public are certainly feeling generous towards Ukrainian refugees, it's just not matched by the reality on the ground because the Home Office is just institutionally so hostile to, to, to refugees conceptually, and they've made it really hard for Ukrainians to come in.
0: Well, yes. I mean, the government seems to uphold this constant attitude towards the refugees coming here. Do you maybe think that the portrayal of different types of refugees in the media added to this as well?
1: Yeah, I think that that's undoubtedly true. I mean, it's a really difficult question how far the media influences public opinion and how far it's public opinion that dictates what's in the media. I'm I'm not... I'm not qualified to to comment on that. But, you know, you do see very negative portrayals of racialized migrants and refugees. And you're seeing much more positive media portrayals of of Ukrainian white women and child refugees. So, um, yeah, it's it's um, it's quite a complex picture out there. And I, I think undoubtedly media portrayal plays a, an important role in that.
0: I think we have discussed quite a bit about the flaws within the British immigration system. I can imagine you would not be able to say as much as you can about this. But considering this when it comes to other countries, maybe in the EU or in general out further, do you think these flaws are reflected in those countries too and within their immigration systems?
1: Yeah, I can't I can't directly compare things terribly well. You know, I, I feel like I, I know quite a lot about UK immigration, but I'm really not quite so clued up about other countries but and certainly there are there are features of the british immigration system which i, I think are um seem to be worse um or, or different to other countries and Things like the, the cost of making UK immigration applications and citizenship applications seems to be astronomical compared to other countries. So to become a British citizen, the fee for an adult is over £1,200, which is a real barrier, for, for example, for relatively low paid EU citizens who, who may have been living here for years. You know, some countries would want them to become citizens and would encourage them to become citizens. I was on holiday relatively recently, and I, I was you know, struck while I was standing in in a queue for um, for immigration at, at, in the U.S. and was we sort of transiting somewhere else. But they had a video playing encouraging people to become U.S. citizens presumably to avoid the queues apart of anything you know the the queue for u.s citizens was a lot shorter than the queue for non-us citizens but there was actually active encouragement for people to become citizens whereas the uk seems to do everything it can to discourage people from becoming citizens and to sort of therefore not have a right to vote in elections and not to be sort of fully integrated members of society you know the fee for children is over a thousand pounds each you know if they were um, born in the UK but uh, they need to be registered as British later because they're not automatically British at birth the fee is a thousand pounds if you've got several children if you're not British yourself you know we're talking about thousands and thousands of pounds on top of the thousands and thousands of pounds that you may well have had to apply um, to, to, to pay for for immigration applications as well so cost is 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 huge I think complexity is a is a big deal as well so when I started out 20 years ago it was relatively straightforward to do a lot of immigration applications spouse applications work permit applications you know, a lot of people would have used a lawyer because it just makes it easier but you could have done it yourself like a, a tax return or something um these days it's almost impossible to do it yourself it's just incredibly complicated immigration law is really badly drafted and it, it's just a massive mess and i really struggle to believe that other countries are as bad as as the UK has become in that respect, because I've I've watched it over over my twenty year career, I've seen things getting noticeably worse year on year because of bad drafting, frequent changes, amendments of amendments of amendments, and so on. It's it's just been been a bit of a disaster. So there are kind of um, hostile administrative um, sort of measures that are in place in the UK that I don't think we see in in other countries. Perhaps
0: that is very sad to hear, but it is good to be aware of this and gives us an incentive in the future to improve our policies and attitudes towards those who come to our country looking for help. But considering this, do you think that we, as a country, should have a sense of responsibility for those who are displaced, regardless of where they come from? Or should we, as others say, focus on those already here who need our support, such as the homeless or those who are already struggling to put food on their table? What is your opinion on this?
1: I just don't see it as an either or situation. I can't, the, the kind of people who say that um, are often opposed to, you know, measures that would actually help the the poor in the UK as well. Um, so I, I really don't see it as an either or at all. Um, and, um, yeah, I think we do have an obligation to um, provide care for people who need it on an international level as well. Obviously, you can't help everybody, but we are signatories to the Refugee Convention, a refugee has quite a narrow definition, actually. You've got to have a well-founded fear of being persecuted. But if we look at the people who are managing to get to the UK and claim asylum, they're coming from countries where they have been persecuted, where a large number of them are succeeding in their asylum claims. And it's a pretty minimalist Commitments that we have under the refugee convention, which I feel very strongly we should we should stick to and one of the reasons for that is that if the u k starts to withdraw from the international refugee protection regime, then other countries will do so as well um, you, know, you, you can 't tell other countries to do what you won 't do yourself it 's obviously hypocritical it 's arguably rather imperialistic as well you know you should you should do something we 're not doing um, and so um, it, it 's really important that we don 't you know, follow through on, a, on any kind of significant scale with plans like the Rwanda plan, where, you know, you'll, you'll see potentially other countries following suit and the collapse of, of the Refugee Convention and therefore of international refugee protection generally.
0: Thank you. And that is a very well made point. Lastly, I just wanted to end this by asking you, like we know, there are many negative perceptions of refugees among the Western countries, including Britain. And I was wondering what causes this, and how can we as individuals work towards counteracting these perceptions?
1: yeah it's a really interesting question and it's a very difficult question as well um I, I think you know part of the negative perception is race um, so refugees are often perceived as as being racialized black or brown and and um, portrayed in a very negative light um in the media as we we're talking about earlier um but I think it, it it probably goes a bit further than that so the refugees are often again perceived as being um desperate about being very poor about having no skills um and that's that's not necessarily true in a lot of cases it may it may be true and i don't feel we should um only offer protection to people who've got skills you know that, that that's not that's not a sensible way forward at all but actually you know a lot of refugees do have something to offer um and um you know there's been things like so there's a campaign that's been going on for some time um called the, the let them work campaign where basically refugees used to be allowed to work in the UK if they'd been waiting for a certain period of time for their asylum claim um and that that ended quite a long time ago a sort of decade or more ago and there's a campaign going to to try and lift that ban on working lift the ban and i've never felt that that campaign was likely to succeed um because the home office is just really Really negative about the idea of refugees working. They think it's a pull factor, so I n- never expect that campaign to succeed, at least under the present government. But it's still a really good campaign to be running because it, it just emphasises that refugees can work, often do have skills that we are short of of workers, um, and that they do have something to contribute. So it's kind of pers- you know, portraying refugees in a much more positive, sympathetic light. And I, I, I think those sorts of campaigns can be can be quite useful in that respect.
0: This has all been very great. It is amazing to learn about these things and be more aware about it and that is why having yourself speak on this podcast has been such an honour and I hope everyone listening will also be able to learn a lot from this. It is an issue that consistently makes its appearance in the media and people talk about but I suppose there's only so much you can be aware about until you do your research in the subject as with everything else and for anyone interested mr yu has written a book which i have mentioned at the beginning welcome to britain fixing our broken immigration system it discusses what we have talked about in more depth and would definitely recommend it i want to thank you once again mr yu